Okay, can I encourage you now to open up your Bibles at page 1196. The reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconum, and Istra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. Good to see you out tonight. Uh, well done for making it out tonight. It's quite warm and would have been tempting to stay at home, but thank you for making it out and thank you for coming along to this new series. As Bill was saying, we haven't done a thematic uh, sermon series um, since I've been here anyway, um, and maybe after tonight you'll know why. <laughs> um, this will be slightly different because... Rather than maybe going straight to a passage and looking at verses, we may take in a sweep of history, we may take in a little bit of background, uh, a little bit of worldview, and then take us to Scripture. So be prepared for that tonight uh, as we look at this and over these coming weeks that the preachers may take a different angle on different parts of this. But tonight we begin an even, in our evening series, a series that will run over these next couple of evenings, looking at the solas of the Reformation faith, beginning tonight with Scripture alone, or sola scriptura. So let me pray for us as we uh, open up God's word and hear about his scriptures tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for being together again. And as you reminded us this morning that we are in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, today you've blessed us with a day of rest. You've blessed us with beautiful sunshine. And Lord, as we come round your means of grace through your word and table tonight, we pray for your Spirit's help in, to understand your word. And may you help us to glory and enjoy the scriptures as they make us wise for salvation, as they are useful for all things. Lord, help us tonight to see your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing about understanding the sola concerning Scripture is its historical 
context. Now, I'm going to do an airbrush historical context for you. It is wrong, firstly, and misguided to think. And there are some today, let me put this out bluntly and controversially, there are some young reformers today who think that John Calvin, the Frenchman, the beer-drinking monk, uh, who was Martin Luther, brought the Bible to the church in the 16th century. They are so enraptured by them, and rightfully so at times for the teaching and their service to the church. But let me put it straight. The Reformation was not the first time that the Bible came into the church, into its setting. In the 16th century, the scriptures were already there. Called them sacred scriptures. Called them the Bible. Whatever it is you want to call them, they were there for the church already, alongside traditions, practices that had come along over the centuries. So the question is, why was there a need for reformation or reforming? Well, the backdrop to the Reformation particularly found the church at the time very muddied in its background. Many of the church leaders of the time were landowners. Some of them were political powerhouses. And corruption was pretty deeply embedded into the life and fabric of the church of the 16th century. One famous church leader around this time was a guy called Pope Leo X. And on his election as Pope, he is reported to have said the following, Let us enjoy the papacy since God has given it to us. And that's what he certainly did. He loved amusement and pleasures of various kinds, music, theater, fine foods. They say he spent the equivalent of having three popes in office. Let us enjoy the papacy. That's why it's given to us. And part of the counter-reformation was an attempt, yes, to respond to the Protestant Reformation, but also a desire by some to address the corruption and the wrongs that went into the church and had slid on unwarranted over time. It was during Pope Leo's papacy that Martin Luther raised his concerns about the way the church was, and particularly the selling of indulgences. Hands up if you have an idea what indulgences are. Let's, let's, great. Not that difficult. Great, great stuff. If you had a family member, to give you an example, who died, you could buy an indulgence for them that would mean that they were prayed for, maybe a mass was said for them, but also it was thought that the dead soul would receive favor bestowed on them as they waited to go to heaven as you bought this indulgence. And this came into the tradition and the fabric of the church, and over time it became very corrupt. People paid lots of money to have their loved ones have indulgences paid for them so that they could probably go to heaven. Martin Luther objected to this teaching and other abuses concerning it. It had gone on too far. He posted those famous 95 theses on Windenburg church door and so began what was initially a concern to address the church, but later led to the Protestant Reformation over time. But you see, all these events centered ultimately on one big question. And it wasn't really about indulgences or corruption, even though they were bad, but rather it was about authority. Who decides Who directs the way of the church and its practice? You see, the leaders of the church at the time when Luther raised his concerns declaring his objections believed Luther was wrong, out of sync with church teaching and tradition. It was the ruling of the church and pope that indulgences were part and parcel of the church's traditions and teachings at the time, and ultimately Luther's teaching was out of sync. And so Luther was summoned, do you remember that famous summons before a church council to explain and recant his teaching? 
And here's what Luther said when he stood at the Diet of Worms. He said this, please note again his convictions and where they lie. He said this, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils for they contradict each other. My conscience is captivated to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. You can see where his convictions were. Luther's speech highlights the crux of the matter. It was the authority of Scripture which directed Luther's thoughts and teachings. He wasn't perfect in that, but it was the Word of God which captivated his conscience because God's Word was the ultimate authority, and that was the major battleground of the Reformation. It was Scripture alone. Was it the ultimate authority, or was it going to be a mixture of traditions, papal authority, Scripture together in equal value and authority for church and its practice. And this is where the church found itself with regards to this. I think it would be easy to think and believe, as some do, that the 17th century Reformation period put to bed once and for all the question of what is the Christian's church and authority's practice for life and practice. What is their ultimate authority? I think it would be naive to think that the Reformation once and for all settled the question of what is the church's authority for its life, faith, and practice. Yes, no doubt out of the Reformation period came a reaffirming of the centrality of Scripture, of God's Word. It brought the Scripture to the masses for those who could read. The printing press was just invented, which helped it. The Reformation highlighted the importance of God's Word as the final authority But the battle today still rages over whether or not we regard God's word as our ultimate authority and rule in faith and practice. For a few moments, I want to kind of sketch a worldview that makes scripture alone difficult to accept. If you, hands up if you're 19, let's go, 1980s, if you were born before the 1980s, just a hands up. Right. Yeah, I was thinking this in the evening, this would happen, wouldn't it? And 1980s onwards, any hands? Bill, you're not 1980s. Great. Okay, just, just have a look over at, yeah, they're, great, they're all in one plot, yeah, as I expected. So all the mid-20s to 30s, mid-20s, 30s, over here, okay, 1970. The, the way to watch this is, is scripture, as I'm trying to sketch this out, let's see if you can identify this, because I think it is important that There's a worldview that will find it hard to accept Scripture alone or have difficulties with it. And it's that worldview of of what you've heard before, postmodernism, and its war on language and words. Okay? This generation, when I talk about these things, I'll go, yeah, that's us. For the rest of us, well, should I, yeah, 1979 qualifies me. For the rest of us, we'll be thinking, you know, reason, argument, they're thinking a different thing. Okay, but they too overlap as well. One of the reasons why the authority of God's word is not so accepted or strong is because of the pressure and sustained attack from culture and times we live in. And we can't just look at it from outside saying it's out there, it's in here, it's in us. You see, you and I are living in a time which has been dubbed post-modernity, culture and world. And the post-modern culture, world and era has particular traits And you'll be familiar with them. The first is this. 
There is no objective truth. Truth is relative and subjective. If you grew up in the 60s, 70s, you wouldn't have believed this. You would have been able to reason it scientifically, put an argument together. But today in our culture, there is no objective truth. How is that simply expressed? It's expressed in this, that's okay for you, but it's not for me. You've heard that before as you explain different arguments from Scripture. But there's another point. There is no longer a grand narrative or big story which unites people together in this era. Today, it's more about individual stories and journeys. Now, still, there is a longing for it. Let me give you an example. If you're involved in a a football club or the GAA or even Ulster Rugby, there's a grand narrative going on there. You're part of something bigger than yourself. But generally, within post-modernity, there is this longing for individualism, this longing for single journeys rather than there being a grand narrative. Thirdly, a postmodern world or outlook will not believe the words and texts can have inherent meaning. Okay? This may be expressed in the following way. You don't believe in the Bible, do you? For these words or texts are only a matter of opinion. It's all just a matter of interpretation. Every interpretation is valid. There is no inherent meaning in a text or words. And lastly, which is most powerful, generally this worldview will see language as power play. And what I mean by that is, so language and words are means to control. Words and texts are seen as suspicious, especially when it comes from institutional organizations, be it religious or government. There is an abiding suspicion, isn't there, every time a statement is made from a church or an institution like the government. What's May up to now? Within this worldview, we view the Bible as a tool of manipulation, of control. These traits, now they're not perfect, and I'm open for discussion with the, of post-modernity, are not seen, are seen both within the church and outside it. But for most of us who grew up pre-1980, we see this as doom and gloom. We just go, oh, this is terrible. How can they have such a worldview? How can they have no relative truth? How can they believe that the Bible doesn't have any meaning in it? How can they believe in no grand narrative anymore? Well, you know something? There's opportunities with this worldview. But it is important to understand this mindset and worldview so as to apply the gospel and God's word appropriately. But if you've been getting these points, then you'll be struck by how hard it will be when you present a book to people in this generation who will say to you, this is God's word, God's way of communicating to us today. The response will be, there is no ultimate meaning to be found in here. It's a matter of your opinion. It's all subjective. It's all about your interpretation over mine. Equally valid both. No such thing as truth. This book is only trying to control manipulate, make us regress as a society and people. And what this ultimately leads to is an attack on language and words. And if you attack language and words, you can attempt to undermine God and his word from discussion, from the public sphere, etc., etc. Let me read a little quote from Amy Orr Ewing in her book, Why Trust the Bible. She says this, The idea that there is no ultimate authority, meaning in any text, has become extremely powerful in our current postmodern context. 
and it has enormous implications for any communication about the gospel. The desire to liberate the human being from the constant constraint of a God is powerfully linked with the issue of language and meaning. If you want to reject God, we have to undermine language. And if this is the postmodern worldview, if this is the outlook of those that you meet tomorrow in your office or school or university or even in the church, even if, if we are this kind of culture, you can see how presenting a book of words, which Christians claim to be God's word, will present huge obstacles to people. And maybe that's why sometimes we're embarrassed to say God's word says anymore. Maybe we're afraid to say it. Maybe we're afraid to bring it into discussion with others because we'll be seen as stupid or some idiot or some dinosaur, whatever it is. But I want to bring us to a passage tonight which shows us that this isn't just a postmodern time. It's not a phenomenon that just came recently, but rather it has been a trait, a culture, a lifestyle, a mindset, and way of life from the very beginning of time to now. Turn with me, will you please, to Genesis chapter three, uh, 1 to 3, just for a few moments. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 3, if you can have them open in front of you, that would be great. In chapter 1 of Genesis, what is the repeated phrase that you see in chapter 1? And God said. God spoke into being created world. God did this by saying, let there be light, sun, moon. God's spoken word creates, it gives life. But God's word also gave direction to Adam and Eve. Flick down to chapter 1, verse 28, where he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's word creates, it gives direction. And then if you flick over to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord gave them a warning from his word, spoke it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so we see that Adam and Eve lived by and under God's word. His spoken word was their rule and authority for everything. Now they had freedom in their life. It was good and perfect and harmonious between God and themselves. But that picture dramatically changes, doesn't it, in chapter 3, if you flick over to it. And the question you have to ask is this, what has been eroded? What is being undermined? What is being doubted and diluted and sidelined? And we see in chapter 3, verse 2, on page 5 of your Bibles, when the serpent comes, the devil says to Adam and Eve, did God actually say? The serpent is wanting Adam and Eve to doubt God's word, and he changes God's word. Do you see it there? He puts Adam and Eve in verses 4 and 5, and he says, God's word's not true. That won't happen. And that God's word about the tree are only there to control you, to manipulate you, to stop you from being God. And this is exactly what our world is in the middle of. God's word is not true. It's been changed. It's viewed as words only to manipulate and to control, to keep you from being a progressive, tolerant, 
inclusive society. And it would be easy to blame just the devil here. But in fact, Adam and Eve changed God's words. See it in verse 3. They say, you can't touch it either. Did God say that? No, he said, don't eat it. And they go, you can't touch it either. There is a total undermining of God's word. And so his authority and his very being. And there is a removing, a rejecting of God and his words. So don't buy into the fact postmodernism is in a different category. It's not. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve had the same traits because it is a human trait and people don't change. So as far back as time began, there's been an attempt by Satan, ourselves in a fallen nature, to undermine the word of God. But despite this, God's word has prevailed and continued to speak, continued to reveal to continue to bring life and hope down through the centuries into our time where God continues to speak today through his word. I don't know about you, but I find great hope and confidence here in God's word that despite the immense pressure and difficulty at times that we have today to present God's word as it is God's word, he has continued to speak. He's continued to reveal. He's continued to prevail And tonight, for the rest of our time together, I want to focus on why exactly we can have confidence in God's word and why we can have confidence in it to hold it out to others and say, this is God's word for us today and for you and to our family and friends to this town. Turn with me to the famous passage that was read by Rabina in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 17. You'll find it on page 1196. Let me just give you a moment to to look that up. So page 1196. Here is Paul writing to young Timothy and contained within these few verses are some foundational truths about God's word and the truths, these truths to how they can have a huge impact. So the first thing to note is in verse 16 that the scriptures are from God. All scripture is God breathed. To use a theological term, it's the inspiration of Scripture. Sometimes when we think about inspiration or being inspired, we think about music, don't we? Or an artist or a sports player. And we say, oh, you know what? That that music was inspired. It was uplifting. Or we think of a player, particularly United today were bad, weren't they? But we think of a player and we think they played out of their skins. They were inspired as if something has happened to them that made them inspired. But it's different with Scripture. It's not as if the words were there and God just came along and inspired them. But rather, these words come into being because God breathed them out. We would not know, get this, we wouldn't know God unless he revealed himself and his wisdom and mercy. He has chosen to reveal true words God's self-revelation, it is his divine initiative to us. Yes, we can look around the world and see aspects of God's character and ways through the natural world that you see around you. This is known as general revelation. But God's special revelation is his word, which he has made known. And don't kid yourself, God chooses to use human language. He is accommodating to us in order to reveal because we're limited knowledge and capabilities. And so he uses words in order to communicate. 
And it's fascinating that God did did this, not just by downloading in one go, but rather he has been revealing himself over the sweep of history and time. Do you remember those famous verses that we read from Hebrews chapter 1? It said this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Over time, bit by bit, God has been revealing himself. But in these last days, Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We have the full revelation of God in his word. It is there for us to understand him and know him. It has come over time, bit by bit, as God has revealed. He hasn't just downloaded the 100%. You see, God's self-revelation, his inspired word, came through prophets and through his son. And so there is a divine authorship, but also a human side to it too, isn't there? God breatheth out his word and human beings pen the words of God. That is why if you're new to scripture, there are different books of the Bible with different genres, different styles and personalities that reflect the author's writings. But yet, as 2 Peter makes clear, it says this, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is not willed by any man or produced by any, but rather God spoke from, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is inspired. It is inspiration of scripture. What are the implications for God's word being inspired It means that every time you read these words, you hear and interact with God's word, with God speaking. You're reading God's self-revelation to us in the world. It is God's inspired word. Have you ever thought about that? It's simple, isn't it? We probably have become so familiar with scripture and reading the scriptures for ourselves that we take it for granted that this is God, the man who made the world and the universe speaking to us here in his word. Michael Horton in his um, book, The Christian Faith, writes this, God's word not only asserts truth, it creates and destroys, plants and judges, uproots and justifies, kills and makes alive. And we get to read it. We get to read his word. It is a dynamic living word to be engaged with, not just a book, But rather, this revelation is precious because of the speaker. Not because of the words, but the speaker it reveals. Horton goes on to say the following. He says, the scriptures are inspired regardless of human response. We think today that if I get nothing new from scripture, it hasn't spoken. It hasn't spoken to me today. Or if I hear something and you know what, it hasn't done anything for me. The scriptures are inspired regardless of human response. Inspiration is a characteristic of the biblical text, while illumination is the Spirit's subsequent work of bringing us to an understanding and acceptance of its meaning. Only the Spirit can give us confidence in the scriptures because it is the Spirit who inspired the sacred texts and unites us to Christ, who is the content. What a wonderful quote. So often we think reason, we think feeling, or we think our response is what is most needed when it comes to God's word, to scripture alone. And here we're reminded 
that we need God's Holy Spirit to illuminate it, for us to understand it, apply it, and allow it to shape everything that we are and do as the people of God. So for the Christian, the Word of God is the inspired Word of God itself. But then we also see, in verses 16, that it is useful. Do you see that simple little phrase? It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Another way of putting this is that it is sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul could write to Timothy saying that God's Word is useful for these things, to do life. But is it? That's the question. Is God's Word enough, sufficient for all of life? Sinclair Ferguson in his book called The Mouth from the Mouth of God makes a very challenging comment on this area. He says the following, everything I need to learn in order to live for the glory of God and enjoy Him forever is there. I will find in the application of Scripture, no matter what my calling or abilities, the Scriptures are sufficient to teach me principles that will enable me to think and act in a God-honoring way when I'm engaged in any activity or vocation. And that is exactly what 2 Timothy is putting out to us. It is telling us that Scripture is useful for all good works. The question is, do you really think that's true of life? Do I really believe that the Scripture is enough in illness, in sickness, in pain, in hurt, breakdown of relationships? Is it sufficient for my workplace? You don't know what I do. How could God's Word have anything to say about the way I work as an accountant, a doctor, as I study? Does it have anything to say to our problems in life? Our first default sometimes is go counsellors rather than back to God's Word and see what it says for different aspects of our life. And most of us will agree God's Word is sufficient for salvation, as it says here. It's clear that the Bible can lead us to salvation, to know Christ. But can it be enough for all of life? Because here it is telling us that God's Word is a Word that can reveal and teach us and is useful for all things. Yes, Scripture is sufficient for salvation. Is it sufficient for all, of, for all of life? I wonder, is it sufficient to be a husband, to be a wife? Is God's Word sufficient about worship, preaching, eldership? Is it sufficient for guidance, for work? That is the challenge. And Paul is saying to us, it is useful for all, for every good work. The challenge of whether or not we believe this is seen in our life and seen in our fabric. And I think for within the church particularly, couldn't you see this in our activities and programs? Could we ask, does the sufficiency of Scripture show itself in our activities, in our programs? Or are they just giving a nod to God's Word, tagged on? Or are they permeating it? Are they permeating our worship? our youth programs, our children's ministries, how we do ministry as elders, as leaders in the church. Is a Bible read every time? Not every time, but is the Bible brought with your elder into your home? Because what that is saying is that I'm coming in here to a pastoral situation with the sufficient Word of God. It is useful for teaching, correcting, reproving, training in righteousness so that everyone can do these good works. The sufficiency of Scripture, it would shout out 
through programs, activities, if we believe it, it will shout out in our home life. But maybe we doubt this. Maybe we say to ourselves, I don't have that confidence in God's word is sufficient. Or maybe we're not willing to risk it, that emphasis, because we'd end up maybe losing people. We couldn't bring too much Bible into a program. We'll put them off. Maybe we need to make it enjoyable, light. Maybe we're not prepared to risk it because we need to be fun and attractive. I was challenged during the week as I prepared about this for Sundays, particularly morning. If I believe God's word is sufficient, it is enough for everyone, then there'll be an expectancy, a waiting to see what God is going to say this morning, tonight. Instead, so often my heart is saying, I know this passage. At new, totally irrelevant. Don't hear me wrong. I need to learn to preach better on delivery and wording and engagement. But prayer, believing, this is a sufficient God's word. This is the inspired opening of God's word. It doesn't matter how we respond. It is still those things. And it is sufficient for all of life. Folks, tonight we begin a series on the scriptures alone. And the question is, and the challenge to all of us is tonight, is God's word enough for salvation? Yes, it is. Is it enough for life as we try to form families and programs and everything that we do as a church? Yes, it is. Is it enough to guide you through the difficulties of life? Yes, it is. But we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it, to make it real, to make it relevant for us. And that is why scripture alone, above tradition, above reason, above feeling, is where we place our ground, where we put our feet and we say, this is your word, Lord. Let it speak. Let it rule. Let it be for our faith and practice as church body together. Let me pray for us as we continue tonight. Father, tonight we confess that we are just like Adam and Eve. There have been times, Father, where we doubt your word, where we've changed it to suit our circumstances, what we want to hear, where we've taken responsibility and put ourselves in the place of God as ultimate authority. And Father, where we live today in the environment and culture is not something new to you. But Father God, we thank you that you have given us your inspired word, that word that is breathed out, that you have made known to us and revealed to us, that you've accommodated us by your word. And Father, tonight we thank you for it. We thank you that it reveals your character, your ways, that it teaches us that it is sufficient for all of life. Father, we pray that you will give us a greater confidence in Scripture alone, because it is your word alone. Lord, forgive us for when we have hardened ourselves to it. Forgive us for when we've been embarrassed to mention it, to allow it to permeate our hearts and our minds and our, heart and our whole being. And Father, give us that confidence again that this is yours, that you've given it to us to know you, to love you and to follow you so that, Lord, we may bring glory and honor by all that we do. Lord, help us tonight, we pray, and bless this series to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.
Let's continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, on this day, we thank you for being together as your people. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have fed us through your word. And Father, we thank you for being able to remember and celebrate and rejoice in all that your son has done as we gather around his table. Father, we pray for this incoming week. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to hold on to your word in all circumstances, to seek how to be guided, how to be led by it. But Lord, most importantly, that you'll help us to enjoy and know you through your word, we pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and this day together. Bless us as we come together next week again. And in the meantime, Lord, go before us and help us to do the works that you have called us to do for the glory and honor of your name. Amen.